This morning, we're going to be in a New Testament letter. And so I, I encourage you, even now, you know, go ahead and find your, find your Bibles and look up the, the book of Galatians, uh, the New Testament letter of Galatians. And this is the fourth chapter, what we're going to be in this morning, chapter four. Now, we're going to be a little bit all over the place. And, and so I want you to find that, put your finger there so that you can be kind of consulting it along the way as we're looking at this. Galatians chapter four, uh, verses four through five. Galatians chapter four, verses four through five. Now, as you're looking that up, I, I'm curious, and I've, I've heard a lot of people say about our current state of things in our world right now, that there's a lot of us that don't know what way is right, what way is wrong. Um, there are so many different philosophies, it seems, to live by, to choose from. That can, it can be disorienting, trying to figure out, well, how do we know what the right path is? How do we know how we're supposed to live our lives? It just... It can feel overwhelming sometimes when we step back and see all of the, the plethora of options, if you will, that exist out there as to how to go about living your life. Now, that might be how it feels in our secular age here in America 2022, but the same, I don't, you might not know this, the same could actually be said for the first century Roman Empire. You know, there's, there's a lot of people that have shown some comparisons to how the, the overwhelming plethora of religious options that exist in our day and age here it is very, very similar to what it was like living in the first century Roman Empire. Roughly 2,000 years ago, if you were a part of the Roman Empire, you were a part of the most, the, the most dominant superpower at that point in history that had conquered the known world. Their empire had stretched from southern England, modern-day southern England, to modern-day Iran. Okay, this was a massive empire that the world had never known before. They ruled the scene. You don't mess with Rome. You don't oppose the emperor. You don't claim to have good news that's going to oppose what the government has to say. And you definitely don't try to get involved with what Rome claims is the religious way to live your life. Well, interestingly, as we're about to see... 2,000 years ago, in the midst of this Roman Empire, there's this group of people who are living in what's, you know, the foothills of modern-day Turkey, okay? This group of people are hearing a story. They're hearing this, this, this news traveling throughout the empire about this Jewish guy, this guy who was executed by this empire. They, he was crucified. He was killed. But yet people are claiming that he rose from the dead. And people all over the place, and especially this group of people in this modern, where modern-day Turkey is located in the foothills, they're, they're, they're asking these questions. What in the world could this possibly mean? Why is this story spreading? What is the purpose of the story? And how might it actually affect or influence the way that we make decisions to how to live our lives? Well, we are continuing in Advent as we've heard throughout this series and this morning. And Advent is so much more than just getting ready for Christmas. Advent is, you know, to, to use the, the, the words that we just sang moments ago, Advent is about preparing room. It's about preparing room for the coming of Christ. It's about preparing our hearts for the coming of Christ. It's about preparing our lives for the coming of Christ. It's about doing everything that's necessary to prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ into our lives. It's so much more than just getting ready for a birthday party. It is so much more than just celebrating another holiday. It is so much deeper than what modern-day America tends to say. Modern-day America says that Advent is just about checking off your list, getting to the stores, buying the presents, whatever it might be. But 
Advent is about a spiritual preparation for inviting Jesus Christ in. It's a rescue plan as well. We're getting ready to see God's rescue plan put into action, implemented into our lives through, through the beginning of what we took place on Christmas Day. And that's one of the reasons why this series is called Unexpected Places, because we're seeing throughout the scriptures how that rescue plan of God's, that, that preparation for the coming of Christ, has been hinted at and spoken of in so many unexpe- unexpected places throughout the scriptures, from the opening pages of the book of Genesis, through, as we saw last week, through the, through the prophetic work of Moses, and now we're actually going to see that the hints and the, and the discussion and the preparation for the coming of Christ even takes place after Christ rose from the dead. Today we're going to see the impact of Jesus coming into another unexpected place, in the foothills of what I said is modern-day Tur- Turkey, but in the first century of, Roman, of the Roman emperor was known as a region of Galatia. And it's around 50 AD, roughly 20 years or so after Jesus was risen from the dead. And we'll see that what's taking place is that the coming of Christ is speaking directly into a question that these Galatian Christians are wrestling with. They're trying to figure out how to live their lives. They're looking for a philosophy that they can abide their lives by. And then suddenly they learn about this man named Jesus who entered into their lives. But in the midst of all of that, they were asking a question. The Galatian Christians were wrestling with a question. It's a question that so many people ask, even if they don't recognize they're asking it. The question that the Galatian Christians were asking was this. They were asking Who are the insiders and who are the outsiders? It's an insiders versus outsiders question that they were wrestling with. Now, this is a question that is so, it's it's a part of our human nature. We love to ask this question. Who's in and who's out, right? Any of you college football fans? You know that this is a big question for those of you who are college football fans because around this time of the year, there's this big debate as to which teams are allowed to be in the playoffs and which ones are kicked out of the playoffs, right? Who deserves to be, to be in? Who deserves to be out? Any of you who are a student of politics know that this question is very important when it comes to getting votes, right? Who are the insiders and who are the outsiders? And not to mention, pretty much every middle schooler and high schooler has to wrestle with this question every day that they walk inside the school building, right? Who's in? Who's out? Who are the insiders? Who are the outsiders? Well, it's interesting. Even one of the most famous verses in the Bible ends up leading to this kind of a question as well. The verse is John 3.16, which I'm guessing some of you know that verse. John 3.16 says, and if you know it, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, but guess what? You know, soon after Jesus uttered this statement, people would look at his words and they would say, okay, Jesus, you said whoever believes in him. Well, what did you mean by whoever? Who's in? Who's out? Do do you... What did you really mean, Jesus, when you said, whoever believes in you? Did you mean anybody? Or perhaps, Jesus, that, that word whoever, you just meant about a certain group of people. Whoever is, a, whoever is a part of this group of people. That's another way of people trying to define who's in and who's out. Well, if you were a Jewish person living in the first century and living within, as I said, the Roman Empire, 
you would have seen the world as having two very distinct groups of people. Those two groups of people that you would have seen were the Jews and the Gentiles. And this is a very important theme that runs throughout the New Testament. The Jews and the Gentiles. For a Jewish person, this was the dividing line for determining who was in and who was out. Now, what does it mean to be a Gentile? A Gentile is simply anybody who is not a Jew. If you are a Gentile, that means you do not worship the God of Israel. You did not worship the God of the Bible. Many Gentiles were unabashedly pagans. They did not obey the same law that the that Jews observed. Gentiles were very, very, very different, very other. They were the, the other people who lived on the other side of the tracks. But to be a Jew meant that you could trace both your biological and your spiritual heritage through the nation of Israel and ultimately all the way back to Abraham himself. Sorry about that. Am I on? There we go. If you, were, if you were Jewish, you could trace your spiritual and biological heritage through the nation of Israel and all the way back to Abraham himself. Now, when you stop and you look at the history of Israel, you read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, you see that God chose the Israelites, to be, to, to, who eventually then became known as the Jews, to be a separate people a people that would represent him in the world, to be a, very, a totally different kind of nation so that the rest of the world would see who, what God was like. This is actually what it says in Deuteronomy 7. Take a look at this. Deuteronomy 7, where we have God speaking directly to the people of Israel, the Jews, and he says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. That's what it meant to be a part of the Jewish nation. I'm a part of God's people. I am God's treasured possession. I mean, imagine, that, imagine having that as your nation's motto, right? God's chosen people. God's treasured possession. This is an incredible identity. And, and as a part of this identity, this is kind of Old Testament background here. As a part of this identity, God gave the, the nation of Israel, God gave the Jewish people a collection of law. And the law was meant to define who they were, who they were called to be, and how they were called to be different from the nations around them. A bit, you know, a bit kind of like how our Constitution is supposed to define what it means to be a part of the United States. This law that was given to the Jewish nation was meant to define who they were and who they were called to be. All they had to do was to obey this law. The Old Testament, which is the first, I mean, huge section of our Bibles, the Old Testament is this grand sweeping history with all kinds of incredible genres and stories and poems and, 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 pro and prophecies that tells of the Israelite nation, that tells of the Jewish people struggling, sometimes succeeding. It's of their ups and of their downs, their obedience and their disobedience of this law. They knew that they had received this law from God and they were called as God's holy and special and set apart and chosen people to be protectors of this law and to honor this law and to, live, to do their best to live into this law. But even in the midst of their disobedience, 
even in the midst of their failures, even in their midst of, of stupid mistakes and, and radical rebellion, the Israelites could still fall back on the fundamental promise that even though we are disobeying the law in this area or in that area or this time or this place, even though that is the case, we're still God's chosen people. Even though we're disobeying the law, we're still God's chosen people. You can hear people falling back on that, right? No matter what we might do when it comes to disobeying the law, at least we are still God's chosen people. We're not the Gentiles. We're not the Gentiles. Now, those of you who are Steelers fans, you know that this season's been a very interesting one, right? You know that this has been kind of a, a season for us Steeler fans. It's been up, it's been down. Well, um, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, there were a handful of miserable losses, and we were just kind of like, what is going on with the Steelers season? Some people were saying, we just need to lose as many games as possible because we so we can get a higher draft pick, and on and on and go. Well, a few weeks ago, after one of these miserable losses that the Steelers had, I'm listening to sports radio in my car, and I hear somebody call into the radio show, and they share their opinion as to what's going on. They said, sure. The football season for the Steelers is not going the way that I want it to go. But you know what? At least we're not the Browns. Now, that mentality, you could say, is kind of similar to how at times many people of the Jewish nation in the first century were thinking. Well, sure, we're disobeying the law. Sure, things aren't going the way we want them to be. Sure, we continue to fail. Sure, there's all kinds of problems and mistakes, and we don't know where God's at, and we continue to mess up, and this, that, and the other. But at least we're not the Gentiles. We're God's chosen people. We're God's treasured possession. And we have God's law. He gave it to us. And so no matter what happens, we know that we can always return to the law. We can always go back to obeying the law. We can always return to the law that God has given us. And, we will, and it, will, it will remind us, it will, it will justify the fact that we are God's chosen people. Because we are the Jews and the Gentiles are not us. We're in, they're out. And then in the 50s A.D., this guy named Paul wrote this letter that starts circulating from, group, from church to church to church all around this region known as Galatia. And in this letter, in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, this man Paul wrote these words. He says, When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, if you're a first century Jewish person and you're reading those words for the first time, you're hearing somebody read this letter and you hear that for the first time, you're thinking to yourself, hold on, what in the world does redeem those under the law mean? We don't need redeemed. We're God's chosen people. We don't need redeemed. The whole point is that we are already the redeemed ones because we already have the law. Why would I, somebody who obeys the law to the best of my ability, and even if I was struggling, I'm still a part of the Jewish nation, I'm still a part of the in crowd, why would I need to be redeemed? Aren't I already redeemed precisely because I have the law and I'm a part of this chosen race, this treasured possession? 
Following God's law, friends, was the characteristic of what it meant to be a faithful Jew. It's part of what it meant to be a follower of, of the God of Israel. It's what it meant to say, I'm a part of God's holy nation. I'm a part of the Jewish people. And so for somebody who's living in, you know, you're living in the, the Galatian region, you receive this letter from Paul, you're hearing this story about Jesus, you, you're told that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. He's a part of the promise that was given to your people all the way back through Abraham and before then. Jesus is a part of this journey. He's a part of Advent. You've been preparing for it all this time. And then suddenly when you finally recognize that the Messiah has come, but then what you are told is that actually this Jesus needs to redeem me? Well, hold on. Haven't I been doing everything that I'm supposed to do in the first place? What's going on here? This is a paradigm shift for many people in the early church. In another one of his letters, Paul would write this. He'd write this to the Christians living in Rome in chapter 3. He'd say, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Ouch. Right? What? I thought we didn't need to do. It didn't matter because we were already a part of the people. But no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, it's through the law that we become conscious of our sin, right? This paradigm-shifting notion these early Christians, such as Paul, are, are, are bringing forward, that the real heart of God's law was that sin requires an enormous amount of sacrifice in order to be faithful to God. The law had a provision for breaking, for, 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 for committing sin, for breaking itself. It had to, and so it incorporated all kinds of sacrificial systems in order to recognize that people were going to be disobedient to the law, but no matter how many sacrifices could be made, the law constantly still held a magnifying glass up to the fact that you are a sinner, I am a sinner, and there's nothing we can do about it. But as Paul explains, the function of this law has actually reached its culmination. The function of the law has ended. The function of the law has actually met its, its desired goal. He says this in Romans 10.4. He says, Christ is the culmination of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. In other words, the entire aspect of the Old Testament law was all there getting us ready for Christ. All of it was there preparing our hearts to come to this complete and utter recognition that I can't do this on my own and I need a savior. The law was there and finds its culmination, its goal, its desired end when Christ has come. Which means, going back to Galatians 4, that those who are living under the law do in fact need redeemed. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. This was the gospel message to the Jewish insiders. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The whole law has been, in, has been preparing for the coming of Christ. Jesus brings about a new covenant, an everlasting covenant that the law did not bring. We don't earn God's love by following the law. We don't earn our, our membership status by following the law. We already have God's love. And so anyone can be adopted by God. How? 
whoever believes in me. Now this message, it, it's shocking to the first century Jewish, Jewish Christians. Because again, put yourself in their shoes. For, for their entire lives and their entire histories, going back and even reflecting on their genealogies and their families, etc. We've always been the insiders. There's perks to being an insider. That no matter what happens, we know we're not the Gentiles. We'll always be a part of the in crowd no matter what. But now, hold on, now you're saying that because of what this Jewish man did on a cross and how he rose from the dead, you're saying that now anybody can be a part of the club? Well, hold on, no. We like our, our, our privileged status. We want to be the only ones who are allowed. We don't want to just let anybody in. Well, this is, a lot of people are struggling with this message in the first century. Because you're saying that because of Christ, even the Gentiles can be a part of this club? Even they can be insiders? Now that's unexpected. But here's the thing. And this is, the, this is what Paul and Peter and the other, other disciples, John and James, so many of them are writing these letters that compile our New Testament to ultimately say this. It should never have been unexpected. That it's actually been the whole point of the whole process from the very beginning. In Genesis 12, when God called Abraham the father of the Jewish nation, he said that all people on earth will be blessed by you. Do you hear that? He didn't say only the Jewish people will be blessed by you. He said that through this nation that I'm calling through your family, you're going to bless the entire world. In Psalm 96, it says that God's glory is to be declared through the people of Israel to all the nations, not just to the people who are already a part of the in crowd. The prophet Micah predicts that many nations, which means all Gentiles, will one day come to learn God's ways. Here, take a look at these verses from the prophet Isaiah. He wrote this hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. In Isaiah 42, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for who? Gentiles. Isaiah 46, God says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept? I will, make you, I will also make you a light for who? The Gentiles. That my salvation may reach to the ends of where? The ends of Israel? The ends of the earth. When... When these first century Christians start going back and reading all of their scriptures, they discover that God's people should have always known that this good news was meant to be shared with all. God's people have always known that it was that salvation was, yes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, that their role in world history was to be the recipients of it for the sake of passing it on to others. And when Jesus came, born of a woman, he fulfilled it all. Those churches in Galatia, they would have actually been churches that were made up of both Jews and Gentiles. They would have been a church made up of both insiders and outsiders. And then they received this letter from Paul as an outpost church in the foothills of Galatia, in a world that's dark and confusing and they don't know what philosophy to abide by in order to make their way through this world, those people would have been reminded 
that, there, that in Christ there is now no longer any such thing as Jew or Gentile, as insider or outsider. Because in Christ, Jesus came to open up the gates to all who would come and believe in him. So that every single person on this planet, regardless of your background, regardless of your history, regardless of your mistakes, regardless of who you are or what you're struggling with or what you might be dealing with, as long as you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, you're in. And you seek to obey him and follow him and, and, and abide by his teaching. The Jews who have made an idol out of the law, they can, they can be forgiven. The Gentiles who never knew God and lived a life far from God, even they can be welcomed. The poor and the downtrodden that everyone is trying to avoid because, they're, the, because we're all we're worried about what they might bring into the room or whatever the case might be. Well, they will become the heirs of heaven. The oppressed and the burdened and the ones who feel so weighed down and they can't get anything off of their shoulders, they will find freedom in Christ. For the people that every other person in this, in, in this world looks at and says, that person's unlovable, they will experience what it means to have divine royalty in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus shows up in unexpected places. And for those Christians living in Galatia and receiving this letter, they were shocked to find out that Jesus even shows up on the fringes of society among pagans who up to that point were practicing all kinds of witchcraft and idolatry. Keep reading the letter and you'll see how Paul refers back to the way they used to live. Jesus shows up in the hearts of not only of pagan people on the fringes of society, but also in the hearts of Jewish men and women who up at that point had kept God all to themselves. And it raises the question about us today. Which group do we drift, tend to drift into? The group who wants to try to hold God for ourselves we want to be the insiders and don't want to be disturbed by anybody who might be on the outside? Or do we find ourselves living on the fringes of society, being told time and time again that we are on the outside looking in? The purpose of the Israelite, of the Israelite people, the purpose of the Israelite nation, was they were to demonstrate to the world what God was like. Well, what of us? How are we demonstrating to the world what God was like, is like? You know, the last thing that Jesus told his followers before he left this earth was this. Matthew 28, he said, go make disciples of what? Of all nations. You know, too many times we, we take verses like this and we just want to stop it. Go and make disciples of the people like me. But even here we see Jesus reminding his, his first followers, go out into all the world, even to the pagan Gentiles on the fringes of society, and invite them in. You and I have inherited this commission to be a light to the world and to take that light to unexpected places. And friends, there are so many situations, there are so many places, there are so many regions where nobody's expecting Jesus to show up. Well, what if you and I are the ones whom Jesus is relying on for somebody else to receive the good news? The single parent who's overwhelmed. Life doesn't seem to add up. 
do they expect Jesus to show up in their lives? For the person who's just lost their spouse and is grieving and doesn't know what way to turn, are they expecting Jesus to show up in their lives? For the elementary school kid who has to come home from school and make dinner for their family because of addiction and neglect, do they expect Jesus to show up in their lives? For the disillusioned and the disenfranchised, for the least and the lost and the last, do, do they expect Jesus to show up in their lives? Well, friends, isn't Advent the time that we as the church are called to go out into all the world and help people recognize that they too can make room, that they too can prepare for Jesus to show up in their lives? How are we going to bring the joy of knowing Jesus into the unexpected places of this world and of our lives this Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a world that sometimes is so dark, so confusing, we know that we can only rely on you. And I pray that for those of us right now who are feeling convicted, challenged, who need to know your spirit's presence in our lives, who are feeling called to go, to go out into the world and to bring the, the light of Jesus to the best of our abilities into the places where people don't expect you to show up. Would you speak to our hearts? And reveal to our hearts and our minds where those places are and what it is that you're calling each and every one of us to do in obedience to you.